Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Dan Goldberger, CEO and Director of ElectroCore. With the mission of helping patients across the globe, who suffer from pain and chronic conditions. And Dan has over 35 years of leadership and medical device experience. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today I'm here with Dan from ElectroCore, a really interesting company. Dan, take us to the future. What the future looks like when you guys are really, really <laughs> successful. Thank you. I'm thrilled and honored to be here with you, Edmar, on a, uh, on a Friday afternoon. I have the honor of running an electroceutical company called Electrocore. We're based in Rockaway, New Jersey. The ticker, we're, we're traded on NASDAQ, and I have to advertise our ticker is ECOR. Hmm. Our mission is to bring neuroscience to humanity, to bring neuroscience to the masses. Our current product offering is a non-invasive vagus nerve stimulator. We are FDA cleared to treat a variety of primary headache conditions. The core technology, vagus nerve stimulation, uh, has legs, has momentum to treat a variety of debilitating chronic conditions. If you look at our website, you'll see that we are working on therapy beyond headache, on therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, for concussion, for treating the symptoms of withdrawal from, uh, from substance abuse, for treating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And so we're very, very excited about bringing the power of neuroscience, the power of vagus nerve stimulation more specifically for the benefit of quality of life and, and to treat many of these debilitating conditions. It's a very, very exciting time for our little company. Yeah, and it's so interesting to see a company that's like no invasive, like using that part. I think what's really interesting about what you guys are doing is that since it's no invasive, it could be applied so widely to many people because you don't need to do anything like you need to, do, to cut the patient, implant anything. So it, this is really interesting. And how did it start? Like how the research and the development of the technology like that, like start? So, you know, you're, you're exactly right. The, the power of being able to deliver therapies non-invasively really opens up so many opportunities. In the 1990s, Cyberonics, which has now been acquired by a company called Libanova, the Cybronics commercialized an implanted nerve stimulator, and that product is on the market today. It's a $300 million line of business for treating epilepsy and for treating treatment-resistant depression. And that's an implanted device. It's, it's pretty expensive, the device, and you need a surgical procedure yeah, to implant procedure. it. And then you yeah. need a surgical procedure every five or seven years to replace the batteries. So the founders of yeah. Electricore 15 years ago, and by the way, every overnight success has about 15 years of uh, sweat and tears. 
For sure. Uh, yeah. Before it becomes commercial. The founders of Electricor, uh, JP Errico, uh, who's an entrepreneur and, uh, and Peter Stotz, who is a, a physician, you know, both of whom continue to be associated with the company. They were looking for a less invasive way to deliver the same signal. And in the early 2000s, middle 2000s, the company was performing clinical trials in epilepsy, in asthma, and the patients were starting to report. And we still have some of these anecdotes, but, you know, the patients were filling out a form talking about their experience. And, and there were a couple of annotations about, and my headache went away. So we were treating asthma patients, we were treating epilepsy patients, but they very quickly uh, acknowledged that their headache was going away. And so the company, you know, like so many other startups, we pivoted to look at headache because headache is a very prevalent condition. And as a non-invasive modality, the ability to treat headache patients was you know, far more possible than when you're talking about a surgical implant. And so those are, you know, I condensed a lot of work and a lot of stress into a short commentary there. But, you know, this was like so many other inventions. Uh, you know, this is a couple of knowledgeable, hardworking, dedicated people saying, does this really have to be a surgical implant? And and here we are today with a growing business in headache. And, and look, we still have epilepsy and we still have rheumatoid arthritis and we still have depression on in our development pipeline. And there's so many things that this core technology can do. How long did it take to get like approval for FDA type of approval, things like that? Yeah. So we actually got approval in Europe under the CE mark first. And that was in uh, 2012, really 10 years ago now. Our first approval our first FDA clearance in the United States was in 2017 for acute treatment of cluster headache. And since then, we now have eight different approvals from the FDA in different forms of headache, as well as an emergency use authorization to treat breathing difficulties in COVID-19 patients. But your question was, how long did it take? In the United States, we went through the FDA pathway called a de novo 510K. And that means we have to demonstrate a safety and efficacy. And the way we demonstrated that was in a prospective sham controlled clinical trials, which are expensive and time consuming to execute. We call that pivotal data that we uh, submit to the FDA to support that de novo clearance. All of that data was subsequently published. And so not only does it support regulatory approval, but it also becomes marketing support, right? We have a substantial yeah. body of high quality evidence that talks about clinical efficacy and safety. And I think that for a product that's like new, different, like what you're doing, I think this approval and this data is really important so that people can tend to be conservative maybe with regarding the treatments that does it's gonna work this is this is a thing that I, it's because people are so used to just the surgery or the pill or something like that and something different yeah. comes along they would the initial thing would be ah, i don't know if this is gonna work and then you have all the data and tests to show and they will have approval then people say wow it seems to be a serious medical device 
just to understand how it works, like I take the device, I put it in my neck, and then I activated it, kind of like that. Let me circle back to your first comment because, uh, and I'll and I'll come back to how we use our specific therapy. Okay. But in life sciences, there were really three value creation events. The first one is when we prove to ourselves that the therapy is going to work. And that usually involves some amount of clinical trials. The second we were just talking about is when we get regulatory approvals. But the third piece that entrepreneurs often don't pay attention to is how are you going to get paid for it? In the United States, in Western Europe, in many countries around the world, we have an expectation that insurance is going to pay for the therapy in one form or another. And that is a third and often daunting step to convince insurance companies, whether it's national insurance or commercial insurers, that they should reimburse the providers. So, you know, I think that's important for your audience to to understand. Yeah. If the insurance is not... It's not glamorous, but sooner or later, you got to get paid for it. Yeah, it makes sense because most of the cost is actually paid by the insurance in the end of the day, right? It's not only like a decision of the doctor or or the patient. Like sometimes it is, sometimes they buy things, but most of the time, like most of the the bulk of the market is from the insurance, right? That's right. So yeah, consumers have this expectation that insurance is going to at least defray the cost. You know, in the United States, there are various programs where there's a copay or there's a deductible, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, National Health Service is paying for certain patients, for cluster headache patients, but not for migraine headache patients. And so for the entrepreneurs in your audience, it's an important step to make sure you've got a path not only to getting regulatory approval, but do you have a business case to actually get paid? Details, one And how one goes about doing that? You need to go to each insurance or the fact that you are approved is just like a, it doesn't automatically make you approved by the insurance, right? It's just like a prerequisite, of course, but you need to go negotiate with them. What the criteria, how do they decide? How do you navigate all of that? So at at the risk of oversimplifying the regulatory process, whether it's the CE mark in Europe or the FDA in the United States or the Japanese Ministry of Health, the regulatory process is safety and efficacy. The insurance process is cost and cost benefit and cost avoidance. And so what we have to demonstrate is that we are either reducing the cost of delivering healthcare or we are improving the quality of the healthcare that is being dispensed. In the United Kingdom, we work very closely with the National Health Services, and and there's actually been a a string of publications that show that our therapy reduces the cost of a cluster headache patient by about 450 British pounds per patient per year. And it takes a while to demonstrate that. And, And how do we show that cost savings? It's about avoiding more expensive modalities like showing up in the emergency room or avoiding more expensive pharmaceutical therapies. So it gets complicated quickly to show either that you're reducing costs or that you're improving the quality of care. And ideally, like us, and how you do long both. does it take? Like I studied, 
how long does it take to do a study like that? Like you got FDA approval, you are happy, but then as you said, you need to get paid. How long would it take to do a study like that? Like we're talking about like years, uh, months, like what's the it time? It generally for? takes years, right? The, the healthcare economics studies yeah. are, are at a minimum or a year long. I think, as I mentioned, uh, we got our first FDA clearance in 2017. NHS started to pay for our therapy in the United Kingdom in 2019. The VA hospital system in the U.S. started to pay for our therapy in 2019. Uh, we're still, you know, we, we're still working on getting broader insurance coverage in the United States and in other parts of Europe. So it's already been five years and then, and then after, and we're still working on it. And then after the study, like you go like after each one individually, each like insurance one by one, like showing the study. Yes. And, and demonstrating. So in many, many European countries in Brazil, Uh, there's national health care, and so that's that's a little bit of more efficient, right? There's only one payer to go to, but but in Brazil and in uh, and many European countries, there's also a layer of private insurance and uh, and private pay, right? Because the national systems tend to be pretty stingy. In the United States, it's very yeah. complex. Uh, there are there are a variety of private insurance companies. Some of them are quite large, like the Kaiser system or Aetna or Humana. And then others are, are small regional players. And so, yes, we have to call on all of them. There's a very large government system called Medicare in the United States. Many of the states have Medicaid. Uh, and again, those are separate conversations from the commercial insurers. So it gets complicated quickly. And, and we have a, a whole function um, in the company that focuses on the insurance companies. Okay, got it. Considering all those steps, like proving first for yourself that it works, second, getting the approval and getting the FDA, and then after the economics or the insurance, like along the way, what are your recommendations to showing some traction so that you can like raise money and do all those steps? Because You don't have, let's say, you don't have like the leading indicator of revenue early on to show progress for the company. So you need to show progress using some kind of proxy or some leading indicator that, that you are moving along maybe this path. And then how do you think about that? About like showing, since you are not getting any money for a long time until you get to this economics level, like, How do you show progress enough to raise money until you get to that stage? So that, that's a very good question. And, and broadly speaking, in life sciences, we talk about those, those three stages, right? There's the, there's the pre-revenue stage, pre-approval stage, where you're talking about clinical studies and phase one safety studies, phase two dose response studies, and then phase three clinical efficacy studies. Then you go into the FDA process and each one of those, phase one, phase two, phase three, regulatory process, those are all inflection points for the valuation of the asset. And then you go into what I call the valley of death, right? I've, I've got a, I have a, an FDA cleared or an FDA approved therapy. And now I have to go build a selling organization and I have to figure out how to get paid for it. 
And often there are early adopters, like in any technology, there are early adopters who are willing to pay cash and are willing to get early access to the therapy because of uh, their specific uh, situations. But there's often a lag between the excitement around a regulatory clearance and when the business starts that classic hockey stick that we're always looking for in the growth of the business. Getting to that tipping point in life sciences is often challenging. And then what you also see, especially in biotech, is that the, the there's a, a, a large cohort, an ecosystem of um, consolidators, right? Larger companies that don't take the risk of new product development, but once you demonstrate some revenue traction, once you demonstrate the the regulatory approval cycle, these are businesses that already have the distribution channel, already have the insurance company relationships. And so they are, they will acquire or they will partner with uh, smaller companies like ourselves. But all of my experiences in yeah, life science. Yeah, I see this, this so happening a lot. I have seen this happen a lot. Like, like it's a big company. You have like a lot of startups. They're doing all the, the first phase, which takes so much time. Like it's so different from other segments because even if you're a large company and if you have a lot of money, you can't just go there and clone the product and do the same. No, you, you, it would take forever anyway, because you need and, the and approval, you, you need everything. So. And yeah, and you gotta be yeah. profitable along yeah, the way. Yeah, so yes. You, right. You can't spend the, the money on R and D. So basically you stay at the, at the finish line and just pick the winners. Basically, it's just what those guys do exactly. right? in the end. Like they, it's a lot of people going running and then they just wait, wait and see. There is another thing. Even after that, though, that I was thinking about right now, like, so you got to the economics of it, you got the insurance approvals. Even after that, to actually make money, the doctor needs to use it as a treatment, right? Because it's, yes. it's not like magic, like the fact that you are instant, they will not know about that solution like that. So they need to know about it to recommend it to the patients as well. So there's still this, then there is like a, would be like more, more like a common go to market thing about going after the doctors and the conferences and things and explaining how it works. And if you guys, how do you guys plan in, in, into like doing it? Yeah. So again, at the, at the risk of oversimplifying it, there, there are two strategies. The first strategy is what you describe, which is a, a push strategy that we educate the prescribing physicians. We educate the nursing staff that's in the doctor's office. And we encourage them to make the therapy available to their patients. But there's also a pull-through strategy where you go direct to the consumer and you use social media, you use TV advertising and a variety of methods to create consumer awareness so that a patient will ask their doctor about this new therapy that they just read about on a blog or they just read about in a newspaper article. And, uh, and there's a lot of, uh, running the business. There's a lot of challenges around how do you deploy? You know, we're, we're all working with limited resources, right? So how much money do I spend on right. consumer awareness to generate pull through demand? How much money do we spend on the push strategy of educating the prescribers? So it's an art. Do you have any, any bias on one side of the other? You have any bias? In favor of one of the two ways of doing it? It depends on the details of the situation. In, in headache, we are very targeted in what we do 
by care setting and by geography. In other words, we have certain cities where we have put a lot of energy into building up a, a user base, a, a physician champion user base. And in those cities, we're now doing, uh, we're now spending on direct to consumer awareness because we know we have providers that can support the demand. And, and so we're, we're trying to do both. But given our limited resources, we're not doing it across the whole country. We're doing it in specific geographies where we have built up some infrastructure, frankly, and it's working. And one of the, as you know, in business, if, if you can demonstrate a scalable business model, it's, you're a lot more comfortable raising capital to go roll out that scalable business model on a larger basis. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that was in my mind as well, like going back a little bit to the product. Sure. I imagine that you have an advantage there as well that you probably would have less side effects, right? Because so, absolutely. you're not like... So it's, you're you're, you're absolutely right. Because any we, don't substance, have, we, we don't have... So in headache, where we've been doing most of our work, there are a variety of drugs available. The most powerful drugs are injectables. And they have a, a black box warning uh, around side effects. You know, there's a warning about using a motor vehicle when you have had one of these injections. And the physicians, the prescribing physicians have to be careful about what other drugs is the patient taking because there can be interactions between drugs that a patient is taking for a cardiovascular condition or for diabetes. So the fact that we are delivering an electrical signal we are cleared to be used as a standalone therapy, but our therapy can also be, is also safe to use in addition to all of the pharmaceutical therapies. So that safety profile, that lack of side effects, uh, that lack of drug on drug interactions is a huge advantage for yeah. us. The other aspect of this is, is telehealth. And so, and that really became apparent during the pandemic because Many of the advanced headache therapies are injections. And so patients have to go see their oh. physician every two or three months to get the injections. And because our therapy is non-invasive and it, it is configured as a self-care, you know, patient personal use device for patients who did not want to go into the office to get their injections, our therapy could be prescribed via a telehealth consult, and then we ship directly to the patient. We train the patient how to use it over a phone call or a Zoom call like this. And it's a real advantage as, as healthcare, and, and, and this is true all over the world, as healthcare moves from being a, you go to the hospital to see your doctor to more of a, a telehealth self-care environment, we have a real advantage. And by the way, I'm a huge proponent of telehealth. There's so much that we can do with remote situations like this call that we're on yeah. right now. There is any pain or discomfort using it? Like so um, pain? it's an odd sensation, you know, nerve stimulation in general. It's not painful. It's not uncomfortable, but it's a little bit odd for the, the, the first few times that you use it. And so the vast majority of folks who try it yeah, will comment on it that it feels a little bit odd, but, you know, they move on. Okay, cool. This is cool as well because like, 
some people don't like injections or like the pain on the needle and things like that. So exactly. Well, and look, we're trying to alleviate pain, pain right? Needle, that it's good as well. We don't want to add to somebody's pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does it help with migraines as well? Yes. We are explicitly labeled for treating migraine headache, cluster headache in adults and in adolescents as well as uh, as a variety of TACs, which are, are TACs, which are, are more complex and rare, relatively rare headaches. Yeah, this this was a little bit of a self-interested question because I ha- I do have pretty, pretty bad migraines. Sometimes people don't mm-hmm. understand how, how hard it is to... Some days I can't even function when I have those. Like I just well, lost a day of work or two because I need you, to you need to just you stay need to bad. Try, you know? uh, it's bad. You need to try our device. I get migraines, but very occasionally. In fact, I had a migraine yesterday and, uh, and I treated myself. And in, for me, the headache, it gets knocked down almost instantly. And if you look at the publications oh, so about cool. our therapy, people talk about getting uh, relief from symptoms within 10 minutes and in many cases can completely abort the headache. We also have a prevention protocol and the, and the clinical data showed a statistically significant reduction in the number of headache days for people who were following the prevention protocol. So I'd love to get a device into your hands and, and see if we can improve your quality of life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, as I have tried a lot of different meds and different things, it's just yep. nothing works <laughs> quite <It's>, well. <laughs> we, we hear that a lot and, uh, and, and I'd love to yeah. have you, uh, opine on, uh, on our therapy. Oh, this is going to be cool. I want to try it someday to, to test it. Good. So what's the next big challenge you guys have? Like what's the next so, thing that's uh, put you up at night? You know, there, there are two things that we're working on, right? The, the first obviously is just scaling up the business. And, uh, we launched an e-commerce platform at the beginning of this year. And, uh, we just touched on the, what we're trying to do with our consumer awareness and, and driving patients, not just to prescribers, but to our e-commerce platform, you know, the insurance reimbursement thing that we talked about. But, you know, the, the, the really the big idea here is what's next after headache. And we announced in January that the FDA had given us breakthrough designation to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. There was data in treating acute stroke that was published in February. There was data treating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease at the end of last year was published. And so advancing these extended indications and then commercializing our non-invasive vagus nerve stimulation for more and more very difficult chronic conditions, that's really the big idea. Yeah, yeah. Since you started this path with this area, like what? did surprise you the most after you joined? So, you know, first and foremost, what surprised me was how well this therapy works um, because uh, I'm congenitally skeptical. (laughs) I've been around (laughs) for too long. And the patient testimonials, the physician testimonials that we get are really heartwarming and and tremendous. and, And, you know, they drive you to do more. And then, you know, the, the other realization is just how annoying the insurance companies are, right? They, they just, <laughs> they just go slowly because they could go slowly and they have no, uh, there's no reason for them to respond to my phone calls. They use the 
the pandemic as an excuse to cancel meetings. So those, those, you know, that's the good and the bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What is the thing that people tend to get wrong or the most common people have or the most common misconception? Like when you go around like with investors, analysts, uh, insurance company, customers, when you talk about electoral core, what people tend to get wrong more often or don't understand more often or what the most common misconception about? First of all, kind of the same skepticism that I had originally, right? That, that how can a non-invasive nerve stimulator have such a profound and reliable clinical effect? And it just, it's hard to believe. And I'm here to tell you that it, it really, really does work. So that, that's really the, that's really the initial conversation. And we talk about our clinical data and the peer reviewed scientific publications. But, you know, for the vast majority of people, you got to try it and see it for yourself. And, and we have tremendous success. You know, the, the hurdle is getting people to try it. Once they try it, overwhelmingly, they get very excited about it. As an investment, that's a, that's a very different challenge. You know, the capital markets, go through cycles. And right now we are in a uh, pretty challenging cycle where growth companies, smaller businesses like ourselves that are still negative cash flow are out of favor. For me, it's been an investment opportunity. I've been buying our own stock. Effectively, all of our uh, directors have been buying our stock because we feel like it's um, so depressed and it's at a, uh, a, a tremendous uh, entry level right now. And we'll see, <laughs> you know, we, as management, we need to focus yeah. on growing the business. Yeah. And if we do a good job of growing the business, uh, the, the, the stock market eventually will acknowledge that. There's another piece of it that we didn't discuss a lot. It's the production of the device itself. How this part of the tech works, right? For you, like you do it in house, you have suppliers, whole situation with like China and the supply chain affected you guys on the like production side of the device itself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so our, our device looks like a piece of uh, consumer electronics. Um, our, the device that we currently sell. Uh, is a standalone device, but, uh, we are in, in the background. We're working on a next generation platform, uh, that will be, um, uh, app enabled and connect to a mobile, uh, platform. So we're, we're excited about all of that. Uh, like all consumer electronics, our supply chain runs through Asia. Uh, we've, you know, we've had our share of challenges, but, uh, we've been able to manage our supply chain quite effectively. So, um, you know, going forward, everybody is evaluating, uh, the ge the geogra the geography of their supply chains, uh, versus the cost, yeah. you know, versus the, the shipping risks. But, uh, we're in a very comfortable situation now. We're probably carrying more inventory than, um, uh, than we would, uh, under, earlier situations. Um, but you know, inventory is a nice carrying inventory, uh, is a nice safety net, uh, to the success of the business. And do, do you think about, uh, having some analytics or apps connected with it, with the, with the divide itself so that people so can track, we, let's say, uh, 
the frequency of episodes, the the amount of uh, the the intensity of it, and things like that. Exactly. So we do have our, our current device does have a um, a Bluetooth radio in it, and and we do have a uh, a piece of software that clinicians can use to look at compliance with the therapy. Right? Did the how often did the patient use it? Uh, what settings did the patient use? But it's cumbersome in our current implementation. In our next generation platform, we're very excited about being able to offer an app to the consumer and not only to enable a variety of different therapeutic options, but to do exactly what you just described, uh, have a diary function and help our patients understand how does, you know, when they give themselves a stimulation, how, when they do it twice, how does that affect their 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 headache, their mood, their anxiety. How does what they eat or length of day? Uh, there's so much to be mined just from simple data cap and analytics, as you suggest. Yeah, and I think this could be a great like marketing as well. It's it's a great like if the funnel starts with the app, let's say a free app that yep. people can do like the management of the condition, and then yep. this funnel would end with the product. So it would be perfect as a as a marketing funnel. For yes. you are because you will already be delivering value to the people, to the patients, even before they actually even get the device or buy the device. It's, it's perfect to like a, a value aggregation of the brand and everything. So this could be everything, everything you described. And as we get additional indications, for example, in, in PTSD or substance abuse, we can deploy those additional indications through the app. We don't have to deliver a an entirely new device. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we are heading to the end. I have still yeah. a couple of last questions. So the first is, what is your advice for someone that's starting in deep tech right ah. now? So, you know, look, the world is scary right now between inflation and a war and pandemic, but that's often the best time to embark on something new and something risky. And because on, I've been on this planet long enough now that, uh, that these things pass and three years from now, four years from now, the people who started businesses, who develop technologies in a, in a difficult time like this, there will be relatively less competition. So as painful as it sounds, the timing is actually pretty good for those who are brave and resourceful enough to try and start something new. And then I guess the other comment is it's probably going to take longer and uh, be more expensive to develop whatever I think I'm going to develop. I keep learning that lesson. And the third lesson is around raising capital. Raising capital has as much to do with what did Jesse James say? You go to the bank when the window is open. You don't go to the bank when the window is closed. When the bank is open, you raise as much money as you can and don't count on being able to get a better price in the future because it doesn't always happen. Okay, great. And do you have any book recommendation for us? Any book that we should be reading? <laughs> As it happens, I've been, as a young man, I read Herman Wouk's uh, Winds of War, which was about the uh, the buildup to World War II, and I just reread that recently. 
And in the context of oh. geopolitics right now and, and what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, so much of history in Europe especially seems to be repeating itself. So that's my book recommendation, completely unrelated. Oh, great. But great. Awesome. My last question is if you were able to send one message, just one message to everybody on earth, what would you say? Be patient. When things look bleak, in my lifetime, there has been so much dramatic improvement in the quality of life and diversity and in just so many aspects. And, and even though it, it seems like we're constantly in crisis, if, if I look back on what the world was like when I grew up in the 1960s and, and when I started my professional career in the 1970s, we're so much more productive today. The quality of life is so much better today than even within my lifetime. So be patient. Oh, this is great. This is a great advice, actually, in true. So it was amazing to talk mm -hmm. to you. I hope that in, in, in a year or so please. we do like a part two to see how things are going. Sure, I'd love <laughs> to, Edmar. It was a real pleasure to meet you, and yeah. I wish you the best of luck with all of your endeavors. And stay healthy, my friend. Okay, you too. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.